This is Oscar week. It is. If you had a ballot, what would be winning? I don't have a ballot. I can't brag and say I have a ballot. But so we're all just <laughs> picking armchair quarterback yeah. stuff over here. I admittedly have still a few more films to okay. see. Like I might try and go get a screening of 1917. Mm-hmm. And I still have Joker and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Okay. I just didn't get around to see some of those big films, yeah. uh, but I've got both of those two on Blu-ray or 4K actually, and so I got to just sit down and pop them in. Yeah. So I mean, based on what I've seen, let's see. What are the best picture nominees? Let me see if I can pull up. A list sure. Real quick. You have you have 1917. You have Parasite. You have Jojo Rabbit. You have Marriage Story, The Irishman, and then Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You just renamed another one here. Um. There's nine. There's too many. Let's just say that. Ford v. Ferrari. Ford v. Ferrari. Little, Little Women. Women and Oof. Joker. So those are your nine. Okay. So looking at the list, yeah. I have actually only seen two of these films. Okay. I'm not going to tear up your film card. Don't worry. <laughs> Little Women and Parasite. Okay. Between those and, two and Arm Wrestling Match, oof. which one you like? I think I would personally have to go with Little Women just because that, that's a, a story that I've had a personal connection to for a long time. That's another production I did in high school go. was Little Women. And uh, I loved that film. Yeah, to pieces. Me too. same here. So, so good. It's my number two of the year. That, that would win the arm wrestling match with Parasite for me too. Mm-hmm. And you picked 1917. I right? did. It's my number one of yeah. the year. And um, that's what I thought. you need to see it on the biggest, loudest screen you can find. So. Yeah, my roommate saw that, I think, last week mm-hmm. with his fiance. And so I, I got a hop over the theater and get it done no worries no rush they're going to give an award on <laughs> sunday whether you like it or not right <laughs> well if that is all we have to chit chat about let's just go ahead and move on to our discussion so everybody welcome to cinescope episode 83 i am back with don shanahan after a long hiatus of us talking obviously the podcast was on hiatus for a long time but don it's nice to talk to you again good to talk to you too chad our previous films that we've talked about, we talked about The Karate Kid, and wasn't there, wasn't there one other? I want to say E.T. Yes, that was it. it. Yeah. And E.T., I think, might have actually been like the last episode before the hiatus, so oh. you had a, a special guest spot there. I feel like a <laughs> jinx right now, like, oh, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the, the monkey you have to get off your back to come back, so all right, we're good. I'm glad we're here. And with yes. something more current than those two. Yes, and I was so excited to sit down and watch this movie again, Don. Just like talking with Dan Lefebvre last week, we I showed him a, my list of movies that I want to talk about because uh, he didn't necessarily have anything on the forefront of his mind. And he picked Adventures of Tintin. And so we talked about the Adventures of Tintin. And we did the same thing. I showed you my list and you said, how about John Carter? And I said, yes, how about that? Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. And I know uh, we both follow, I think, the underrated podcast mm-hmm. with, with those boys. And they they love this movie, too. Um, I tell mm-hmm. you what, I, I, I meet so many people in little film circles, whether it's Facebook groups or otherwise, where this is one of those little engine that could movies that people just the pe- the fans that like it love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's people who are like, oh, I didn't get it at the time. But you know what? It's really it's an all right movie. It's fun. It's good. I have no one who ever steps up and goes, man, that movie's garbage and I hate it. No one does. <laughs> Nobody. They, they'll, they'll admit that it wasn't maybe their thing at the time or they'll admit that it wasn't the big hit it could have been or this got its flaws. But no one downright hates it. Yet the world sees this movie as a massive flop and it's such a shame. Let's talk stats first, and then we'll talk sure. about like our first experience. And I, I have an interesting first experience with this movie and this Ooh, franchise. I want to hear. Uh, so this movie was released on March 9th of 2012, was directed by Andrew Stanton. This was his first live action, so far only live action film directorial yeah. effort. Uh, he co-directed A Bug's Life, 
and then he went on to direct Finding Nemo, Wally, and then Finding Dory, all for Pixar, obviously. Uh, the screenplay was written by Stanton, along with Mark Andrews and Michael Chabon, and it was based on A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. The music is by Michael Giacchino, who is most oh. known for Mission Impossible 3, Ratatouille, Star Trek, Cars 2, Up, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, Star Trek Into Darkness, The Incredibles 1 and 2, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Inside Out, Star Trek Beyond, Doctor Sh- I, I, I mm-hmm. could keep going and keep going. I'm not going to read out all of them. Yeah, you just see two Oscars and he's the man. Yeah, he is He is so great. He's one of my favorite composers, and this is one of my favorite scores by him. And we'll have plenty to say about that later. Uh, the movie stars Taylor Kitsch as John yeah. Carter, Brian Cranston in a small part, Daryl Sabara, plus Lynn Collins as Deja Thoris, Dominic West, Sierran Hins. Mm-hmm. James Purefoy, Willem Dafoe, Samantha Morton, and Thomas Hayden Church. Yes. Sir. Uh, as well as Mark Strong as another villain. <laughs> uh, professional movie villain. Yes. <laughs> so let's have you start. What was your first experience with this movie that you remember? Um, I, uh, this was around the same time, if I remember correctly, as The Hunger Games. And mm-hmm. uh, I think this one came out first. I want to say The Hunger Games came out in April. And. Um, I had known nothing about either franchise, and uh, I trusted the Disney brand. I don't mind Taylor Kish as an actor. Um, the marketing for so many people, myself included, was was odd. You know, I don't think people understood what they were stepping into because I think a lot of people see this as like a Star Wars knockoff, or, or I'm sorry, an Avatar knockoff and a Star Wars wannabe. And I don't feel like it's that movie at all. Where I mean, I, I but I have a discerning eye, or at least I think I do, when I'm watching previews and stuff. And I was hooked. I wanted to see it. They look great. Everyone else was kind of like poo pooing it. And I'm like, no, I can't wait to see that. It's going to be so fun, uh, especially when you get Disney, especially when you get Stan and things like that. And um, I saw it. You know, your typical Thursday night show. 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, when you could see him early in, in time for Friday. And I loved it. I, I was hook, line, and sinker in for it. Whether it, was, whether it was the score, the sweep of it, the swashbuckling, the sword and sandal combination with science fiction. Um, as soon as I got out of the movie, I had to, I had to absolutely digest history. I went to a Wikipedia page, and I'm like, I didn't know my way around Edgar Rice Burroughs. I didn't know the full history of the series and things like that. I had heard of the name because I knew the Tarzan history with the, with the author. But I had no idea the world went as deep as it did, and I had had no idea it had the roots and inspirations that it did for other people since then you know because this was this was the pulpiest of pulp a mm-hmm. hundred years ago when the book was written so and it was the thing that inspired the ray bradbury's and the carl sagan's of the next generation who have gone on to inspire the james cameron's and the people of now so this is bedtime story stuff and i took it as that after i saw the movie and i'm like you know what this would be a heck of a bedtime story i don't <laughs> need it to be an Avatar knockoff or a Star Wars wannabe. I was so pleased with it. But by the time I saw The Hunger Games, you know, a month later or so, I was just so underwhelmed because I'm like, gosh, I know this is a made-up world and a post-apocalyptic this and that or something that is trying to be high fantasy. But you know what? Just I'd rather watch John Carter right now. Mm-hmm. And I had such a blast just enjoying as if I was a kid watching something new, something amazing. And yet we're watching something 100 years old. And that is the irony of looking at this as a knockoff of Star Wars or of Avatar is the fact that those are actually knockoffs of this in a lot exactly. of ways. Exactly. There are direct scenes, like the big arena scene that everybody thinks in this film was a ripoff from Attack of the Clones. Attack right. of the Clones took it from this first. Uh, so there are lots of small instances like this. It also inspired stuff from Superman and a whole lot of other things. Uh, I, I said I had an interesting history with this franchise. Yeah, let's hear it. Uh, so 
when it was first being promoted and first coming out, I was following Andrew Stanton on Twitter and he was very excited about his first live action directorial effort. He was very excited about some of the positive reviews that were coming out at the time and he was sharing those. So naturally I was seeing a lot of the positive reception that this film was getting initially because I was seeing it directly from the director and Andrew Stanton being who he was and Wally being one of my favorite films and certainly Finding Nemo as well. I had a lot of reason to be really excited. I was so excited for this movie and then it came out. And it flopped. And yeah. I am ashamed to say I was one of the people who contributed to it flopping. I didn't go see it in theaters. I just never got around to it. And so sometime after it had been released, I picked up a book on Amazon. I think I got it for free. It was called John Carter and the Gods of Hollywood by Michael D. Sellers. And it just okay. explores the history of this production, the promotion mm. of this film why how it flopped so badly and i was just completely drawn into it this is before i saw the film this is before i had read any of the material you, you took all that in before you saw the film Amazing. yes I, I just i wanted to know like what happened i was so excited for this sure. and it came out and then i lost interest why and so the author exp explores all those possibilities and soon after i picked up the first book in the john carter series i picked up a princess of mars and i read yeah. it and it is as you said such pulpy fun it is such a great page turner every page mm. something new and exciting is happening it is just like ad the adventure story of all adventure stories it is so much fun and so after i read it i was enthralled i loved it that is when i finally <laughs> picked up the movie watched it and darn it off i didn't love it you know it, it was and then it was like kicking myself in the pants because i didn't catch it in theaters when i could when i had the chance and i mean Unfortunately, this film's reputation being what it is, it's likely not ever going to get a film re-release. Yeah, yeah. the best you're going to get is a big home home 4K screen, you know? Right. And so, I mean, it, it's at the same time a good adaptation of the source material, but I also loved how in a lot of ways it was a new exploration of the character and of the story. Agreed. And I don't want to spend the whole podcast sort of comparing and contrasting the, the movie to the book. One, because it's been a long time since I read the book at this point. Sure. But I will highlight just a couple of things that I think stand out about what Stanton accomplished with this movie. So that's my history of it. I'll give one quick plug and then I'll plug it at the end. I did a whole exploration of John Carter back when I first started exploring things. And I did this big write-up on my blog at the time called Chad Talks Movies. My Adventures on Barsoom is what I called it. And so I, I did reviews of that book by Michael Sellers. I did review of The Princess of Mars and then the movie and then the soundtrack. So I'll, I'll put that in the show notes for anybody who wants to read all of that kind of comparison kind of stuff. Yes, please. <laughs> my hand um, is up. But for now, let's just talk about the movie and let's let's kick it off with the story. So what about the story or the set production design? Any sure. of that kind of stuff really stands out to you here? I came to the well, after seeing the movie, I was inspired enough years later. It took years to get back to it. Um, it was also me just trying to I'm not a book reader. I, I don't have any patience to sit down and read a book uh, page to page, things like that. I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I write my own. I have enough things going on. Um, but I got to a point um, with commuting to work and I have a good half hour commute to work where I started to digest audiobooks. Mm -hmm. From, I started to use you know plug here to the Hoopla digital app that you can get from your local library. And um, the very first books I wanted to grab were the were the were the Barsoom series from Edgar Rice Burroughs. Because I, I I loved the movie. I had seen the movie multiple times since since it came out. And I'm like, I I, I want to know what the books are like. Um and that same thing, I did Princess to Mars first. I ended up going through the first uh, three movies, I think the first four books. Mm -hmm. uh, and I could not digest them fast enough on audiobooks, <laughs> which was awesome. And um, 
it, they only made me appreciate the story more. And I, and I think the hardest thing we can talk about without, you know, comparing novel to screen is the book will always be better than the movie. It's just a disclaimer that goes on a t-shirt. We all get to wear, <laughs> but at the same time, um, if you can make, if you can turn the book into a movie in an economical and, and smart and savvy fashion, I think you've got something going. And the, and this movie does that and does it while still kind of taking some time to breathe. Like you have a pretty, pretty lengthy little prologue here of mm-hmm. time spent on earth to do the Daryl Sabara bookend, but also to set up the prospector, set up the, the war angle, set up his kind of indifference to things. And then you have an extended little epilogue where I don't want to jump to the end, but where he leaves Barsoom and we have to kind of wrap that up a little bit. And you know, I know that's probably 20 minutes of fat other people see into a movie, but I'm I'm so pleased that they found a storytelling device to do that, which again matches the novel, you know, of a story being told. Mm-hmm. And and I love that because I think too many movies with source material like this forget the storytelling fashion of this, forget the bedtime story thing I mentioned earlier, where these are the things that weren't automatically translated to radio or screen and things like that. These were things that were soaked up, absorbed and read mm-hmm. in living rooms with families at bedtimes and things like that. So go ahead and make a movie that emulates that. Let's sit down and stay here for a while experience. And Stan did that beautifully where the story has sweep and you still can kind of mix enough elements into the Barsoom story. I know you have to squeeze a lot of exposition in there of who's who, what's what, but I think it moves so well to do so with that. I know it's kind of jargon and gobbledygook if you're not ready for it, but if my goodness, if we can accept the force and laser swords, we can accept <laughs> something like this. So I think the thing that stands out a bunch, and I don't think it gets enough credit for it, is the production design. Mm-hmm. This is uh, Nathan Crowley, the production designer who's the regular for, for Christopher Nolan. Mm-hmm. So this is the guy who's been nominated for five Oscars. He's done Dunkirk. He's doing Tenant this coming year. I mean, they brought in big guns to make this movie look amazing and Utah doubling as Mars is outstanding, you know, cause you can tell in so many places how many practical sets they've done. And this isn't just 300 where it's all CGI green screen stuff. There's plenty of CGI, but you know, they're kicking up dust. They're, they're getting dirty. They're down in the muck and all that. They're, they're doing the performance capture to put people in screen and not just all, you know, Again, not fake things. They they did their best to put things in place, and I I couldn't be more impressed by that. Yeah, I love the the use of real sets. The the shooting on location adds so much to the film. The fact that it's not just like some weird sci-fi space exploration of Mars. This is like a place that you could go and look at if you wanted to. If you really wanted to go see what Mars quote looks like, you could go out to these yeah. locations and you could see exactly where they put this film together. And you're right, they did put people out there in motion capture suits. I think the people playing the the Tharks, Willem Dafoe was out there on stilts. Like he yeah. was out there being a Thark. The way that they tried to give the film that sort of authenticity was really impressive. Uh, I also really love the bookends with Daryl Sabara. I mean, how great for an author to sort of have the audacity to write himself into the story and make himself a relative of his main character. That right. is so much fun. Edgar Rice Burroughs, whatever. That's awesome. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I, I like that even before we get the Daryl Sabara stuff, we get the introduction to sort of the politics, the goings on of Mars. Okay. Mars is dying. This is what's happening. Sabthan is taking over. He has this mysterious new weapon. There's these other weird people that are taking control. And so right from the start, even before we're introduced to who this John Carter person is from the title, we know that Mars is in trouble. Again, economical. Right. And and, and they're in need of some sort of savior. And so 
yeah, we can guess John Carter is going to be going to Mars. He's going to be their savior in some capacity. But we 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 set that up from the start and we see him get to that point later. I like just the world building. And a lot of this is attributed to Edgar Rice Burroughs because he's the original author, of course. But uh, the the fact that Mars isn't just like this is not only a civilized planet. It is also a planet with advanced technology. And the the design of these ships that look like giant dragonflies is so cool. The The weapons are really futuristic in a, a really cool way. It's it's very futuristic and different than Star Wars. And I don't want to give it the easy adjective that other people have done of like steampunk. It's right. better than that. <laughs> better than that. <laughs> it is. It is. And man just the fact that we do have so many diverse kind of characters diverse races different kinds of people to root for to follow along there's so much going on in this world and yes i'd say you probably need to go to the book if you want to get the full picture of it but the 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 film presents things in a very economical way as you stated and it's really easy to follow and really easy if you're giving it the attention that is necessary to really figure out what's going on pretty quickly I know I've been mean to people sometimes about this movie where I think in in my write-up I called it, there's some youthful ignorance here, you know, because this is different storytelling than the fast stuff we do now because of the source novel and et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, and the idea that this was a series that was going to keep going. And, and again, some of this is also Burroughs' words where you've read the book where, I mean, it's not shorthanded English either. Like it's rich language mm-hmm. and in the lengthy descriptions of the different you know races and things and, and, and the imagination to say, we're going to have this, we're going to have that, we're going to have this thing do this. And even the, his descriptions of the animals in the novel, they're just so incredibly thick that we just don't get that nowadays. You have so many movies we see nowadays have just these nondescript things minions or monsters you know i hate to call out the mcu and the avengers but like what are thanos's creatures that have us you know that are in battling in wakanda and then later in new york at the end of you know both of the two avengers movies like there's no there's no description time spent or 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 investment in developing what all that could be it's just stuff for the sake of stuff to fight and beat up whereas in this you have you know you have woola you have the Tharks. You have all these defined and 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 described things that that matter and have push and motivations. Thanks to that prologue, and yeah, you just I just thought this did a better job, like you said, with world building than ten ten times other movies that we see nowadays that just throw stuff together or copy a zillion ideas mm-hmm. and hope for the best. The thing you have to think about and the thing you have to realize when Stanton adapted this and did such a great job with is that this was basically originally written sort of like a TV show. It was serialized. Sure. A Princess of Mars started being released in 1912, and it wasn't published in a novel form until 1917. It was released right. in serials. It was bit by bit by bit. And so each thing had to sort of stand on its own and leave a little hint of what's coming up next. And that's the way the film plays out, too. It's, it, it, it's a great serialization of this story. If you were to take this film and break it into 15, 20 minute little short film chunks, it would work because there's these little twists, there's these little turns. Like you get him stuck in the cave in Arizona and you stop, come back next week. You (laughs) send him to the planet. He's trying to jump around and figure out the Tharks show up, come back next week. Mm -hmm. Tharks take him in as a prisoner, take him around and, you, you know, come back next week. All of a sudden he saves the princess of, yeah, you could do every 15 minutes. This movie could turn for you and transition for you. And Stanton keeps that, which is brilliant. Mm -hmm. But it still also works as an entire 
combined Absolutely. Yeah. story. When you get time. Now talking about John Carter himself, I like that for right from the beginning, uh, when we're meeting him in 1881, we get a little bit of mystery to his character. He's an explorer of some kind. He's been traveling the world and his attorney says it, it always seemed to me he was looking for something or not his attorney, his assistant. It always seemed to me he was looking for something. And when we go back to several years previous, 1868, I believe, he's being teased about searching for his evil spider cave of gold. So he's, he's this explorer. We don't know what he's looking for, but th there's that mystery. And then all of a sudden he's dead and we don't know exactly what's going on, but his nephew comes into the picture and we get the flashback via the journal, great framing device. And mm. we see so much of his character in these beginning scenes in Arizona. We see this decorated war hero who wants no part of any further war, any further fighting. We see views of his wedding ring, flashbacks to glimpses of who we can assume at the time to be his wife. And by the end of the film, we know he's lost his wife. He's lost his daughter to war and he finds himself guilty. He, he's it's a tragedy. It's a, it's a really sad thing. And it's because he was fighting. It's because other people were fighting that he lost his family. And so you understand why he's so averse to participating in these conflicts, to aligning himself to either side. But we also still see him as a noble man in that, again, that opening scene in Arizona, he escapes on horseback. And when the, the Apaches attack and Powell is injured, he could have left him behind. But no, he goes and saves him. He takes him off. Yes, he says he doesn't care about either side fighting against each other. But we also see, in contrast to that, how he is a noble person. He does care and he does value life. His character arc is really well done because they, they telegraph that so well in very humane ways. Like he does it with, through body language and action so much more than he does it with speechifying. Mm -hmm. He does drop his lines of like, you know, I'm not here for a cause. I don't need another thing to do. But he's not really jibber jabbering away about being overly verbose. Like, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. You see it with like, like when Deja falls off the throat and he just instinctually as just a gentleman – check on a girl who fell down. Mm -hmm. I just got done yelling at her, but I got to check on the girl that fell down. Mm -hmm. he, uh, there's so many little body language notes and actions in the film to expand, like you said, this nobility of character. There's grand gestures as well, but the little things along the way, even just his use of ma'am, just to even be Southern, to retain that and keep that here. And it helps that Taylor Kish is, you know, a darn good looking Texan Southern guy, you know, <laughs> who could, who could, who can pull that off. Now, don't get me wrong. He's not winning any Oscars anytime soon, but at the same time, you could have done far worse. You could have had a Dolph Lundgren level himbo in there who couldn't <laughs> emote any of that, but you believe it through Taylor Kitsch because he has that tortured soul quality to him. Thanks to years of getting beat up on Friday night lights. So, well, something that stands out about the film version of John Carter versus the book version is what, what occurred to me while reading a princess of Mars is that John Carter is just a hero. He's like a flawless hero. I can't speak to the other books in the series, but princess of Mars, it's just like, I am the good guy. I'm going to do good guy things. I'm going to yeah, be the action yeah. hero. And, and, he, and he knows he's the strongest, right, and the best. Right, exactly. Yeah. But here we see flaws in his character. We see he's rude, he's rebellious, he's yeah. selfish, he's disrespectful to authority. And yeah. so it gives him something to strive for. From beginning to end, he is striving to be the John Carter of the book, the John Carter of Mars. That's that transformation that right. takes place over the film. He goes from General or Captain John Carter of Virginia to Dotar Sojak, right hand of uh -huh. Tars Tarkas, to John Carter of Earth, 
to Jeddak of the Tharks, and then eventually okay. to John Carter of Mars. So he has a step by step transition where we, where we see as he's building these relationships with people, he's reconsidering his stance on life choices and committing in the end to marrying Deja and to throwing away the medallion that would have brought him home. Very cool transformation for this character, and I like how he goes from selfish to selfless in a lot of ways. I think the penultimate scene of that, and I bet you agree, is um, when he sends Deja off to save herself with with, uh, with Soja, and he stays back with Bola and takes on that horde of of more of more monstrous Tharks. That scene between Giacchino's score, between the editing to hash in with every sword strike is a shovel strike of him burying his wife and daughter. Mm-hmm. That scene is dynamite. It's heavy. It- because it's heavy, but it's heavy. It's adventurous. It's exciting because he's out there. He's like, this is it. I'm giving my life. I'm done. Sword drawn. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to do this for the girl I want to save. I'm going to do this for the girl I lost. And all of it, all of it comes out with every sword strike, every note of the music, every blow he strikes. And it's awesome. It is. We haven't seen a hero. We just got done with three, uh, another trilogy of Star Wars movies that never had a hero moment like that. Not the, not even close. And that's the key with his decision making in that scene too. He didn't go uh-huh. into that horde saying, I'm going to survive this. I'm going to kill them all. No. He goes, I'm, I'm going in sword slashing. Yep. I'm ending them. I'm ending me. Like this is, yep. this is the end of me. Absolutely. And I, I love what that means for his character. It's such a strong choice to see him commit himself to ending himself, basically. And yes, he does come out of it, but that wasn't his intention going in. No, but and you said it's selfless. He goes from, from selfish to selfless, and that's the big peak of it. And his actions from there is like when, like you said, that's when he starts to pick up and go, all right, I got my cause and let's roll. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to go get me an army. I'm going to go be a leader. I'm going to really show up and make all the right choices to ascend to a place that I, I can do some good. But it but it took that moment of that selfless jump. Mm-hmm. to you know, I can't say the jump, but just that that motion of I'm in like mm-hmm. that ma- ma- massive level of commitment. Like I said, I don't, I can't name, I know we've had a lot of MCU films lately and we've had a lot of Star Wars movies lately. And, you know, I know Tony Stark, you know, if we're going to do an Avengers parallel kind of sort of wants to do this when he snaps his fingers to take Thanos away at the end of end game. But that's a momentary thing after he sits out of the game for a while. I, I can't give me, give me the John Carter moment right. to the Iron Man. <laughs> I'm sorry, but yeah, it's it's just drawn up so much better. It's done in the right place. And and cinematically, it's just shot so much better. And one of my favorite moments is that scene in the arena where he has defeated yeah. the white apes. He's saved Tars Tarkas and he wishes for challenge on Tal Hajis and he brings him down. And that is so fantastic. Having everybody pledge their medal to him and Tal Hajis says, okay, let's bring it on. And he jumps down and there's not even a fight. Who cares? Oh. This, this guy oh. is a chump compared to John. And yeah. I love how John leverages that into let's, let's build an army. Let's convince everybody that every life is worth fighting for. Put aside old prejudices, put aside old enemies and conflicts. We are fighting for Mars. I am John Carter of Mars now, and we are going to stand up for our planet and against Sabthan. And I'm always impressed that, um, not, and I am a lot of you impressed by it now since I've read the book, is all that politics is in the mm-hmm. book. All of that 
we need to do something better and we need to change the way we are as a planet and unify together. All that stuff's in the book. It's not just some wishy-washy thing put in the movie for the sake of, you know, having political commentary in the movie. That's the book too, mm-hmm. bringing Martians together. And it's awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, again, the, the scope of creation from Burroughs, it, it was honored by Stan shows up here just even a taste of it because again this is a movie compared to the depths of the book but man it's all there well let's use that to transition into talking about tars tarkas and the tharks sort of as a whole because the tharks are i think the most fascinating species uh, or group of people creatures in this world because we see so much of their individual politics we see uh, the fact that their young are born separately and then they are claimed in this like wrestling match between all the mothers, basically. And uh-huh. the ones that don't hatch along with the others, they're too weak. They're not worthy of being Tharks. Kill them. Destroy the eggs. Yep. That is such a violent take. That is such a hard take. And those are hard and violent people. They make sport of war. When we see that uh, Helium and Zodenga are fighting in the airships in the, the Thark space, they take cover. And they place bets because this is fun for them. They're watching people slaughter yeah. each other and they want to pick a winner. And at the end of it, Tars Tarkas says, let red men kill red men. Let Tharks be the only ones left. So we, we see this really harsh view of the world and of their culture and society among the Tharks. We see how Sola has been treated at the hands of the Tharks. All these punishments, all these marks on her skin for basically nothing. She's, she's basically just picked on. Uh, because she's different right and so what we see over the the film is how tars himself uh first off he has the trust of his people when tal hadges at the beginning of the film asks for the right of challenge nobody backs him up for it because there's no reason to challenge tars tarkas they have been prosperous they have been doing well and tars has been a great leader but then we learn that sola is his daughter john intuits that sola is his daughter and seeing how he's compassionate towards her and that's that statement right there tars was compassionate that's not a thark characteristic and so he's exhibiting this this trait that is so opposite from his peers and when he he makes the emotional choice to allow sola to escape with john and deja it's a huge sacrifice for himself because it means the sacrifice of that trust that he had of his people and when we return to the tharks later in the film when john comes back to try and amass an army tars has been all but killed he's being he's waiting to be killed because he was challenged and he lost because he no longer had the support of his people and he lost a challenge if there's a thing that the movie softens and maybe wisely so is um the deeply for lack of for an earthly word, the deeply religious angles that are within all the peoples of Mars are softened here a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably okay because if you've read further than the first book, it gets it gets hairy in a hurry in terms of like you know false gods and things like that. And um, I think they 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 say it enough. They show the like you said the either the dedication to race and family enough or the divisions of the ways of the world, the harness of the world and all that. They define that enough in a, in a core almost spiritual way that enough of those notes are there without getting all, we worship this river and this thing and this lady that we never see. And two novels from now, she's an evil person who eats everyone who ever goes down the river to pretend to die. <laughs> and it's creepy and it's weird. You know, um, I'm glad they soften that. But at the same time, like you said, it's, that that backbone is still there of all of these people have their warped sense of honor and it's how and where it comes out 
and what can inspire them to shift it. And it's it's fun in a you know in a pulpy novel way that it's the the alien that gets to do that, which is cool. And in this case, it's you know the guy from Jasum, which is John. So yeah, it's it's fun to watch all that. But you see that pride in all three of the races we see in the movie where Pledge My Metal to Yours is what you hear a ton. You know, and and that's that's the commonality they all have, even if they're all not fighting for the same cause. And it's a wondrous, wondrous thing when we get them to a place where they can. And the person who gets to, to lift that flag and do that so much in the movie is, is Tars Tarkas. And I love in the novel, how much he is again, for lack of a better word, I love how much he's the BFF of things. <laughs> the other guy who, um, gets much more time in the novel than does in the movie. And, and it's, it would be hard to get a second BFF, but Kantos Khan mm-hmm. in the books has, is that helium BFF. Mm-hmm. And uh, he gets, uh, James Purfoy does, has a fun role here for little bits and parts where you can see where there could be a cheeky relationship between him and John as, as kindred spirits and, and all that. But uh, the, the movie does just fine to kind of still make helium your easy, good guys and, and good people along the way. Deja is great in the film as well. In the book, again, what I remember from the book is Deja was the princess to rescue. Oh gosh, such the damsel in distress. Exactly, but damsel that's in distress. Twelve thing. And yeah. now here, she's the head scientist of helium. Yes, yeah, she's still a princess, but she's the head scientist of helium. That's the first time we're introduced to her is her trying to prepare this presentation of a scientific discovery of the ninth ray. Unfortunately for her, though, she is a princess nonetheless, and she's caught up in the politics required of her, calling for her to be married to Sabthan against her will for the protection of her people. And and, uh, uh, she eventually relents to that, uh, but not before she puts up her fair fight, tries to find a solution to get out of that and to save not only herself from this fate of being latched onto Sabthan forever, but also saving her people from being latched onto Zadanga as well. She wants her people to be strong and independent, and she wants herself to be strong and independent. In a lot of ways, she is. But again, she is a princess, and as princess, she has certain responsibilities. I think they really make her, in a good way, uh, more of a chess piece than a damsel in distress, which is good because she could be a very powerful chess piece. She could be a rook, a bishop, or a queen, which is wonderful. And yeah, Lynn Collins displays that very well, you know, as a strong female character. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure some Bechdel test somewhere says there's still not enough lines for women in the movie or she doesn't get enough things to do. But I tell you what, compared to the novel, she's one of the hugest improvements because it's not just the prettiest girl in the world. Because to hear in the novel, how many times John Carter fawns all over Deja <laughs> Thoris and her in his description of her every chance he gets of you think the chivalry is on, you know, on seven in this movie and the book it's twelve. You know, so they 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 lay it on really thick in the book. And they make these two characters, like you said, kind of prideful and, and strong equals enough that when there is romance there, it fits because they're both cut from that about that same cloth of strength mm-hmm. and not just the rippled muscled superhero and the hottest big breasted woman, you know, <laughs> right. it, it's, it's, it's strength meaning strength and match meaning match. And it, it plays much better. Do you have other characters you wanted to highlight? Like I said, I kind of name drop Kantos can where, uh, you know, in the book he gets a lot more to do, which is okay that he doesn't get more to do in the movie. But yeah, you, you have the triumvirate there, which is, you know, Tars Tarkas. I, I guess, you know, one more, that I love um, from the book that they make adorable in the movie is Woola. Yeah, Woola is so great. <laughs> well, it's so great, you know, and and spot on to what the what what he uh, what he is in the novel or what it is in the novel, and uh, it's such a fun little character. I think another way of saying this is, and I'm surprised because this is in Disney hands. Normally, without without fail, 
movies like this or even the animated versions of, of High Adventure, there's always one character, annoying side character, you just want to punch in the face. Whether it's Iago from Aladdin, Eddie Murphy's Mushu the Dragon from Mulan. Like, I'm so glad the studio didn't just insert some stupid presence for the sake of having a stupid presence or an overly cuddly sidekick who just says cute things like it's Orko from He-Man or something. Mm-hmm. You get Willa. You get a, an equal warrior who could just kick butt and get out there and run around and still lick your face and clean you off when you're done. I love <laughs> that Disney relented its usual tendencies to put something stupid in there. I was so happy that I don't know whose hand hit the table and said, nope. If it was Stanton's or Burroughs, uh, whatever. I'm, I'm so happy there's not Iago in here. I, I love how such an ugly creature can be so cute Yeah, <laughs> in a lot of ways. Uh, the way Willa commits himself to John is so awesome. Uh, after he is saved from being beaten by the Tharks by John, a couple of his finest moments when he stands with John as he faces down those Warhoon Tharks. That's right. Uh, he, he refuses to leave his side. Uh, and then later, as John is being sort of kidnapped by Matai Shang, Wola steps into the rescue, bites him, allows John to escape. So Wola has his his shining moments too. Last week we talked about the adventures of Tintin and how Snowy is so integral to the plot there. Yeah, yeah. And he's such an adorable dog character, but he's still an important dog character too. Without being silly, I think Wola fits in that same same vein here. Not silly, not overdone, and all that. I'm also glad and. In- this is where Burroughs gets a knock a lot of times is um coming from Tarzan. The part of that story that has not aged well is the white savior thing, mm-hmm. which is fair, you know, uh, to a degree where take it as fictional enough that, you know, cause again, the treatment of natives versus the big powerful white guy mm-hmm. is, is a difficult thing where I'm glad the movie tiptoes there, but isn't this, I mean, race is involved or if you want to call it race is involved and, or, you know, different factions and castes are involved, but I'm glad it doesn't go full white savior. Mm-hmm. It didn't need to, which is good. Later in the novels where there's black Martians, it would, and I'm glad they don't go there. <laughs> so thank goodness that it's accessible in that way. Cause a couple years later, they had a Tarzan movie with a guy from True Blood and all that, uh, Alexander Sarsgaard. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't help but watch that and go, gosh, I don't know if Tarzan super duper fits in today's narrative where too many people are going to be like, oh, you have the white guy beating up the Africans and, and saving the day and damsels in distress again. So, mm-hmm. But again, back then, allowable, okay, take it as a time capsule as you should. But it's a tough sell to make that now and not step into that bad spot. I'm glad this movie did. One more character I wanted to mention, just because he wasn't featured in at least the initial book, was Matai Shang uh, in the Therns. You can probably say, I think the Therns do pop up eventually in the series, right? Yeah, a little bit, but not not the puppeteers in this, yeah. Yeah, in Princess of Mars, I think they're maybe name-dropped once. Uh-huh. But what was really cool about the Therns and Matai Shang is they're, they're like this these mysterious puppeteers and masters of manipulation. And it's a game for them in a lot of ways. It's like they choose an outcome for the planet and they use everything, everyone as their pawns in achieving that outcome. It's a game. They're, they're having fun. It's for sport. And there's the scene where the big villain monologue that Mark Strong gets to have. Uh, He, he says that they manage the destruction of the planet. They feed off of it. So I, I just thought that as interesting characters go, having these mysterious puppeteers sort of managing right. things behind the scene and saying, no, this is, this is Sab Than's time to rule. And this will lend to the destruction of these people so that that can happen. 
And it's played with such smoothness because let's be honest, Mark Strong is a professional movie villain. He knows exactly how to do that. <laughs> He's a pro. And Dominic West, equally professional yeah. movie villain. He's never a nice guy. I, I guess as a as a fellow novel reader, and I, not that we're all traditionalists and we're not the comic book salesman from The Simpsons sitting here going nitpicking every little thing in the world, could this movie have worked without the third presence? That's my question to you. Yeah, I think they could have. I think they could have too. I, I think if you just made it about the the, the conflict between the people and then yeah. maybe put in some sort of ties to eventual, I mean, I wish we'd gotten the sequels and it doesn't look like we're ever going to, but in the sequels, we could have yeah. been like, oh, remember that happening in the first John Carter film? This is oh. why, this is who it ties back to. Just like it happens in the book, I suppose. I, I think that would have worked fine. Could they have just made the medallion be the only piece of mysticism that got him to and from? Mm-hmm. I think they could have pulled that off too. Yeah, we could have still had all the the ninth. Well, maybe not all of the ninth ray stuff, but the the mm-hmm. whole down the river is at the gates, yeah. all that kind of stuff, where they're getting the mystery of it and like, oh, what's this place? What does this mean? I have this medallion that brought me here. Oh, it's going to take me back. All that kind of mystery. Uh, but then bring the the therns of it into it later. Yeah, it could have been done. But I, I'm glad. I, but he, like I said, he's smooth. I don't feel like it over. I don't feel like it cancels out the other struggles that are there and mm-hmm. it, it works. You know, I think you needed that presence. And again, more mysticism, more Mark Strong. So. <laughs> what about the music here? What stands out oh, about man. Michael Giacchino's music? I like, I, is it the, what is the string beat he uses as that little chord in the background? I can't place the instrument. You're the music guy. Mm-hmm. Do you mean like at the beginning and the end of the film? Yeah. What's the instrument that's making the, the, str- the strummed chords the dun dun dun, that twinkling of his theme that just adds, I don't know, an ethereal quality instead of just being all brass. Like if this was if this was Conan the Barbarian, mm-hmm. you'd have um, Basil Polidorus out here with just all brass, uh, you know, all strength, all strong. If this was a Disney movie, they would also. Well, it is a Disney movie, but if this was a <laughs> Disney movie f- from fifty years ago, they would also all brass, all strong. It, but Giacchino comes in and gives it a genteel quality matching the, the the genteel heart of the characters a little bit while still ramping it up like you need to to kind of be an adventure movie but i i can't place because it's not a harpsichord it's not a harp ah i can't place it uh, are you talking about just like at the beginning of the film yeah and then also the beginning of the credits as well yeah we we hear the theme several times obviously i think it's, it's probably a string instrument you're referring to either yeah. like viola or cello or something like that something okay. one of those richer tones but it's romantic is what it is. It and is. this this theme is going to be stuck in my head for the next two weeks. So I can uh-huh. thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. Honestly, this is one of my favorite Giacchino scores ever. Uh, stands right up there with The Incredibles while still being wholly different than that. And we do get several iterations of John Carter's theme. The first hint is over the logos at the very, very beginning, where it's just this mysterious presence, this mysterious introduction to the character. And then the first time we get this big sweeping version of that theme is as he's escaping on horseback from the prison. Mm -hmm. And then when he gets to Mars for the first time, we get this lilted sort of string waltz version as he's experimenting with the gravity and he's flying around. Uh, That track is called... Gravity of the situation, I believe. Yeah, because so. <laughs> of course, Giacchino and his puns. Yes, yeah. of course. You can't have a, a good Giacchino score without the puns. <laughs> it's honestly just some of Giacchino's finest work. You have the, the theme I for agree. the Ninth Ray and the Thern as well. The action music is exciting. The themes are rich. It's honestly right up there with some of William's Star Wars music, I would say, too. It's I agree, It's just too. as good at the, the building of the world as yeah. John Williams' Star Wars stuff is. 
like you said, um, the range of it is really good because, like you said, like I'm talking about a little opening motif just to add softness, but then you have the warlike chants that kind of fill in where those warring factions come from from the Red Martians. Mm-hmm. And Williams is a very good comparison here because in those Star Wars scores, he has little motifs for each thing. It's not that he's trying to do Peter Peter the Wolf for the orchestra, <laughs> but um, but he's got that whole thing where he could take one theme of one character, one theme of another, and at some point they weave mm-hmm. into the scope and, and, and fabric of the movie. And not many composers can do that. You see a little dash of this, a little piece of that, but nothing like a unifying thing where each thing could plug in and work together when you need them to. Williams does that brilliantly. You'll have an action sequence where a Leia theme will sneak into a Force theme and the, the Imperial brass will come in and, and steal the, the, the thunder away from a certain moment. And everyone's like, oh, you know, Williams is just a theme artist. That's all he does is make themes. Well, go back and look at Williams and the way he weaves everything together or the fact that his movies have more than one. Because mm-hmm. how many movies have we seen where all you can do is the same repetitive riff or cue and that's all you got? Right. Giacchino has the depth to make multiple things and weave them together and suit each scene. And the mix of the film or the, the, the choices of – I guess we have to say the sound editing where it's still a sword and sandal film where you have sound effects and, and, and clanging swords and, and kicked up dust and herds of, of things coming at you. But at the same time – the steps and sound of, of the score do, do not go away and they, and they really merge in. Well, I, yeah, I, it's, it's, of course, it's probably not going to be for a lot of people, Giacchino's most memorable work, but when you go back and, and sit down almost clinically and look at it, it's easily one of his most complete because I know he did star Wars just before this, which wasn't bad, but he's borrowing, you know, he's borrowing a theme and then adding some fun along the way. Mm-hmm. But this for, for, for an original work, not stealing other things he's because again he's jumped into star wars he's jumped into the mcu um yeah short of his pixar stuff this is classy good stuff i really like one of the uh, there's a lot of tracks i could name uh another one that stood out as i was watching the end of the film is the track 10 bitter years uh the the, yeah. the very cool suspense music that builds in the strings that incorporates a little piece of the john carter theme as we're building up to that final showdown right. outside of the grave uh, out where the tomb Really, really nice. And, you know, anytime there's a suite on a soundtrack, I'm there. And there's a fantastic end credit suite here that is called John Carter of Mars, which should have been what the movie was called. Whatever, Disney. I know. Um, So I kind of get what Disney was going for, right? He's John Carter at the beginning. By the end, he is John Carter of Mars. And we finally get that JCM logo. But yeah. If you wanted people in the theaters, let them know it's a space movie and call it John Carter Mars, please. Um, or, or do the novel. Call it a princess from Mars. Yeah, princess either way. I mean, he says the line in the film, a princess of Mars. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, that's that's a, a whole other aside. But John Carter of Mars is the last track on the album. It's eight plus minutes long. It's every piece of material you could want from the, the film as a whole compiled into one. It's very, very nice. And it, it's peaceful, too. It starts off that way, at least. When you, you get to th- that logo... And the credits start playing and it's not brass to the wall. It's let's, let's breathe a little bit. Let's have this romantic theme for a little bit and we'll get to the cool stuff later. But right now let's just bask Mm -hmm. in the glory of John Carter's ascension in a way. Like he, he he has reached what his purpose is. And again, for, for Giacchino to employ and use every stitch of the orchestra to do it is, is proof of his brilliance, you know, cause like, like, and we keep saying Williams, um, Williams can do that. Williams can use an entire orchestra and create a legitimate, sweet track. Hans Zimmer can't do that. 
Hans, as great as Hans Zimmer is, he gets his he gets his core rumbling thing, especially lately where he's getting electronic with things and very percussion based with things. He can get your energy up, but he can't sustain you for eight minutes at a time. Or if he does it, he has to do it with incredibly repetitive and incredibly slow, mm-hmm. where he's got to get those Dunkirk drums or he's got to get the church organ for for Interstellar, and that's all you get because he's just going to repeat that. He needs that that heartbeat note. That just unfortunately is repetitive. Mm-hmm. This, like we keep saying, has sweep. Wonderful, wonderful sweep. And variety. And man, Jacino, yes. I've I've always said this. I've said this for at least a decade. Jacino, I think, is the most talented active composer working in Hollywood right now. I think the, the the genres that he can work in, the yeah. the styles he can mess with, the instrumentation, his ability yeah. to adapt into another composer's style, talking about something like Rogue One, where he actually wasn't even completely just mimicking Williams. He stepped in and filled in for Alexander Desplat, who stepped away from the project in the last month of the film uh, being made. So, I mean, he has shown how adaptable he is, and I cannot wait to see what Giacchino continues to do for the rest of his career. You will enjoy to see him take something smaller. He just did the score for Jojo Rabbit, Mm -hmm. which is up for the Oscar, and decidedly smaller film. Mm-hmm. decidedly different tone of film. I don't know if, uh, I mean, I know Giacchino's done historical stuff when it comes to some of the, the, um, the Incredibles vibes of like 60s, kishy James Bond stuff, mm-hmm. making a, making a forties film, his score for that you would like, I'll have to send you a digital copy. You'll, you'll, you'll dig it, but Excellent. then you'll listen to it, but you'll listen to a score that's out of context in the movie. So I don't know if I want to do that till you see the movie, but let me know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but in the meantime, no, I've loved his work since lost because mm-hmm. the same thing. He brings so many different motifs and cues there where, again, he'll take a roller coaster of a scene and he'll do the life and death stuff. He'll do the, you know, the island theme. He'll do, you know, I don't know if you're a lost guy, but like, um, yeah, he's he's the best. He's the best of this new breed working today. The tor- he He's the guy who will take the torch from Williams and deservedly so. Let's go into our final discussion section, which is the takeaways from the film, themes from the film. What ultimately does this film leave you with going on? A couple of things. It gives me, like I opened with, it gives me so much respect for this era of of pulp novels and pulp fiction, and in uh, not the Tarantino version of pulp fiction, real pulp fiction, <laughs> pulp science fiction, these early works of science fiction. And and since I've seen the movie, and it inspired me to seek out more of it, and since I've now read the novels in the last two years, I've just done a deep dive. Where once I got done with Barsoom, I went back to Tarzan. Once I got done with Tarzan, I did um, some Sir Arthur Conan Doyle in the Lost World. Mm-hmm. Then I'll do like Zorro. You know, I'll do just I find these 100 year old things of written fun that are just better than some. I don't know if I could pick up a a novel now, some science fiction that would that would just I don't know, just be as rich mm-hmm. as as this old stuff where, again, the language is different. It's more advanced. The vocabulary is so much fun. And as a school teacher, I'm engrossed because it's, because it's complicated. Complicated in the way they describe it, but simple in the way they want it to storytell. Mm-hmm. Like, this is good guy with damsel in distress winning, saving the mm-hmm. day. But they give us twists and turns and created worlds that challenge me. And I like that. So one takeaway is just don't have youthful ignorance for this era of culture, of, mm-hmm. of cultural medium, and honor the things that inspired the people who've inspired us since. Because when you do hear about you know, George Lucas and the Carl Sagan's and the Ray Bradbury's who read this stuff and beloved it, 
I find I find it easy to love it too, and I like that. The other takeaways are again that uh, you know me. Every movie has a lesson, mm-hmm. so the nobility stuff is just so huge, and I love that. I love that addition to the story that wasn't in the book because the book is the book is a Superman. The book is a guy who is the flawless, not the whatever the name for a male Mary Sue would be, where he <laughs> everything works for him, you know. So I like the the fractured character that finds nobility and redemption and finds selflessness. Love that arc, mm-hmm. and yeah, the science fiction wonders are there too. Where same thing, sweeping romance, you know. I I'll go back to that comparison I said at the beginning when I saw the Hunger Games. Two months later, and for as much as world building as they tried to do, and as much as they tried to, oh gosh, shoehorn romance into the into that series, it just didn't feel as fun and as rich and compelling as this one. Mm-hmm. So if I if something like this, and it's somewhat dated sophistication, can beat stuff like The Hunger Games, great. Put me in a time <laughs> capsule. Keep me there. I don't I don't want the modern stuff. If the old stuff is always going to be this fun. There were a couple of quotes from the film I wanted to to highlight. Uh, there's once early on in the film after John and Deja first meet, uh, John says war is a shameful thing as Deja is sitting there mourning the loss of her people after the, the airships go down. And she yeah. responds, not when a cause is taken up by those who can make a difference. Great line. This is a, a woman who has just, again, lost several of her people. She is losing her way of life because she's being forced into this marriage in order to protect her people. And she has so much to get away from not fighting further. She has so much to gain, namely people's lives. But she says, not when a cause is taken up by those who can make a difference. That's when this stuff matters. And later in the film, she says, if you had the means to save others, would you not take any action possible to make it so? So I I love this highlighting of... Sometimes when there is a cause to fight for, the fighting is worth it. You, 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 yeah. you have to stand up for something sometimes. Uh, you can't just sit by and hope for something to happen. You have to take charge. You have to, to get people to your cause. You have to do what it takes sometimes in order to accomplish what you're wanting to accomplish. Uh, you have to stand together. So that was something that I thought was really worth taking away from the film. She also has a quote. She says, a life of oppression that's not living in reference to marrying Sabthan. John says, well, save your people, marry Sabthan. Like, duh, uh, that's, that's his solution. But she says, a life of oppression that's not living. It's sort of going back to another Andrew Stanton film. Going back to Wally, you have John, I think his name's John. He says, I don't want to survive. I want to live. You know, it's sort of that same kind of thing. I don't want to be sure. tied down in this less than ideal situation just to save people that that's not worth it. That's a life of slavery, a life of servitude in a lot of ways. So pushing past that expectation. And then one more on John's side, the idea of moving on, but not forgetting you, you look at Uh his relationship with his wife and his daughter that he's lost. And for so long, he let this tragedy rule his life to the point of making him selfish. And it was only when he let himself care about new things on Mars to fight for things, open himself up to the possibilities of new love, not to replace the old love, but in a way to sort of continue it. That was when he learned to care about not only himself again. So moving on, not forgetting. He shouldn't forget his wife and his daughter. Those were important parts of his past and they made him who he is, but he can't let the the loss of them just rule his life. 
Remind me, and I don't have a good memory for this part. I don't know if there's a wife and lost daughter in the novel, is there? Not that I remember. I think we just get, I don't think so. I think we just get, you know, burly awesome Civil War hero with the gold mine, and that's all we get. So to add that layer, it, it's, it's just a stroke. It's a great stroke of genius for that. Because like you said, it humanizes and brings that character together. Yeah, I, yeah, just, man, whew. We see so many movies where, you know, I think we started saying this, where at the beginning where I, I'm I'm that guy who's quick to put the T-shirt on and acknowledge that the book will always be better than the movie. But there's different places where a movie can improve upon or shine a better light on the book. Mm-hmm. And we've said that through this whole conversation between uh, a stronger female character, a fractured character that's not trying to be an antihero, but just has fractures, has flaws, mm-hmm. has loss. And even the scene where he's taken that wedding ring and he's giving his beat up former tin wedding ring to his new Martian wife is amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, just such a gesture, like you said, of not forgetting, but continuing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's such, yeah, just, just a nice way of doing things. Uh, a level of, I don't want to keep saying chivalry again, but just <laughs> a level of romance. We just don't often get, we, we get hot and heavy stuff. We get superficial things. We, we get navel gazing, but we don't get spiritual equals. And, and we get this here, which is cool to see. Do you have any closing thoughts on the film as a whole? More people should go see it. <laughs> yes, you know, <laughs> um, people ask me all the time. Like, um, or the question comes up in different groups in different places. Like, what's a movie that gets a has a Rotten Tomatoes rating, like a Rotten Rotten Tomatoes rating that is great and you people should see it? And unfortunately, too often, I think John Carter's on that list. At the same time, is now that Disney Plus is out, John Carter's still finishing its little contractual run with Netflix. But when people are like, "What's something I maybe haven't seen that I need to try on this new service that everyone's trying?" Right now, I'm telling people on Disney Plus, go see like The Rocketeer. Mm-hmm. You know, because uh, that's again. If you like Captain America and MCU stuff, go watch Joe Johnston do it even better with the Rocketeer. So like these are those fun little – what Disney used to do. Disney used to make live-action fun adventures that they don't make anymore. They reboot and reimagine. And those – the stuff we've been seeing lately is just so regurgitated, grand and amazing as it can be. It's just the same, and it's creative bankruptcy, like people say. But then you get something like John Carter, which is manifested and rich and awesome, and where all of us are begging for more creative new ideas, but too many people keep, again, seeing this as Avatar and Star Wars. So if you can get past that and take out some youthful ignorance and do some homework when you come into a movie or out of a movie, you'll just get richer appreciation for things. And this is a movie people can can richly appreciate. I agree on all points. I am heartbroken for Andrew Stanton that he wasn't able to complete the trilogy that he set out to make for a man who had such a a colorful animation career. And he's still making movies. I mean, he's still out there doing things. Yeah. Toy Story 3 he helped with, or Toy Story 4 he had a hand in. So he's all there still. But I would imagine that a defeat like this one is demoralizing in a lot of ways. And it's not because he made an inferior product. This is, no. It's all on the marketing. Again, I'll recommend that book. It's called John Carter and the Gods of Hollywood. It's all about why this movie failed the way it did. And it was not even kind of remotely Andrew Stanton's fault. He made a fantastic film. It's a lot of fun. Lots of, again, I I said at the start of the film, it's a great adaptation of the book while still building it and making it his own and making characters new and interesting. Uh, And that's really all you could ask for from a book to film adaptation is something familiar but different. I think, especially for especially for something this old, where you do have some hurdles to to get people to buy in, mm-hmm. and you do have all these comparisons. For, but so for him to make like 
for him to make this level of detail and do it with this kind of honor. He deserves another chance to make any live action film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope he gets that chance. I hope Dizzy comes around and gives him something. I hope they don't give him oh, what would be a dumb reimagining <laughs> that we haven't touched yet. You know, what's ha- what hasn't been done yet? The Rescuers Down Under or something. <laughs> I hope they don't give him something like that. Give him something rich and good, you know. Give him John Carter two and three. <laughs> Jim Gontar two and Why three. Not? Give him the God of Mars, you know, the warlord of Mars. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, no. Um, the other thing I'll recommend to people, um, once you see the movie, go find that book. Um, I can, I'll, I'll name drop it again. If you have a library card with the hoopla system, the first, I want to say four or six of these novels are all free audiobook checkouts mm-hmm. you can do in the hoopla app. And it's a really, I have to say, it's a really cheesy reader. Because in audiobooks, one person has to play all the characters. His FEMA voice is terrible. <laughs> and he tries like this, like Southern accent on movie, which is, again, a reach. But look past the voice, look past the really bad man trying to talk like a girl. But you get, again, you, the rich language and the adventure comes through even with bad reading. Well, I'll say I, when I first bought the book, I bought it on my Kindle. And I believe it came with the first seven books in the series. And it was like maybe five to eight bucks, something like that. So if you wanted to go that route too, if you didn't want the audiobook, yeah, definitely go for that. And you can get the first seven books. And that way it's easy to commit because you got seven books right in front of you. And they're quick, easy reads. They are very easy reads. I, I want to say each of the audiobooks were five, six hours. Mm-hmm. Times. They're, they're real quick, fun things to do. And when you're done, go listen to Tarzan too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I bet I've been all, I head over heels over burrows. It's been fun. Yeah, well, if that's all we have to say about the movie, I will say that is the end of the 83rd episode of Cinescope. Thank you so much for joining me, Don. No, thank you, Chad, for having me. Let's find another one sometime to talk about some more. This has been fun. Yes, it has. Let, let's do it. Contact for the show, facebook.com slash Cinescope podcast and at Cinescope pod on Twitter. Please consider going over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating, drop a review, hit that subscribe button to help gain notoriety and to help spread the word get new listeners into the show. If you have feedback or ideas, you can always email thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. And Don, where can we find you and your work online? Uh, easiest place to find me is the search item of Every Movie Has a Lesson. That's everymoviehaslesson.com. That's where you'll find me on Facebook and on Twitter. Um, I'll name drop the other outlet I've been writing for, 25 Years Later. That's 25yearslatersite.com, but 25YL is the way you can search for that stuff. I'm on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm on other places and things, and it's just been fun to put reviews out there. Uh, Oscars are this week. Birds of Prey coming up soon. We'll see how 2020 treats us with no Avengers movies in sight. Well, I guess you have Black Widow. That doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see no star wars movies this right year, so yeah. uh the best place to find me is at chadadada on twitter that is c-h-a-d-a-d-a-d-a i have a letterbox account it's chadadada 17 uh, if you wanted to follow along with uh, what i watch on a regular basis and maybe see what's coming up next on cinescope i always post there I want to give a couple quick plugs that I don't give every week, but because we talked about John Carter today, first off, you mentioned the underrated podcast earlier today. They are no longer the underrated podcast. They are now called Franchise Fatigue. But when they were underrated, I was on an episode with them talking about John Carter and how great it is. So if you want to hear more, um, maybe some of the same stuff, maybe some different stuff, go listen to them. I'll put a link in the show notes. There's also my giant write-up which has links to other write-ups of each individual thing. Uh, It is called My Adventures on Barsoom, and it's on my website, chadtalksmovies.com, which I don't really post on anymore, but I will make sure to link that in the show notes as well. And then lastly, 
there's my other podcast, which is called An American Workplace. It was an episode-by-episode rewatch of The Office. It is since finished, but the whole archive is available to listen to, is available where podcasts can be found and at workplacepodcast.com. In all the show notes, if you need to see them, all the contact information can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. So thank you once again, Don. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Chad. Take care. You too. Bye, everybody. Have fun and celebrate movies. What have you been up to? Uh, for me, um, long time, no chat. It's just been um, more of being the press credential guy, uh, climbing the ladder, doing what I can, trying to write different things for myself or for otherwise. Um, I've picked up mm-hmm. an outlet since I talked to you last. Um, I've been writing as a staff writer for the website 25 years later. They're a good mm-hmm. little genre site, kind of they're uh, all your obsessions in one place is kind of their slogan. And uh, it started out as a Twin Peaks website, and it has turned okay. into a kind of an all entertainment, all genres kind of place. And uh, they were inquiring for writers last summer. I kind of answered an ad from a couple of people on Facebook and things like that. And I've been writing for them uh, for a good bunch of, uh, yeah, I think about seven months now. Uh, I'm, on, I'm awesome. on my like 40th piece for them. And uh, it's been really good because um. I have more traffic, right? This it's been the biggest site I've written for in quite a long time. So, um, they get about, um, uh, nearly approaching about 200,000 UMVs a month. And that's shoot 10 times more than my own personal site does. So that's, you know, it's, it's <laughs> nice to have an audience. It's nice to, um, help that site kind of get on Rotten Tomatoes. Cause I've been able to get on Rotten Tomatoes over the last year. And, um, uh-huh. Yeah, just kind of having that uh, having that credential get a little thicker and be a little more fun and uh, and yeah, enjoy myself along the way. You know, I'm I'm a school teacher by day, so uh, middle school social studies kind of fills my time and I, and I love that. But at the same time, it's nice to have this little moonlighting night job of seeing movies and writing about them. So yeah, that's kind of what I've been up to for the last so and so year bit and change. Nice. Uh, what have you been to the theater to see lately? I know you get the free screenings and stuff like that. So what kind of stuff you've been doing? I sure do. I'm ashamed to say to that question, I have not gone to a press credential screening since Star Wars. Okay. A week before it came out in December, I've uh, I'm on a dry spell of dry spells. It ends it ends tomorrow <laughs> though. Um, tomorrow I go see. Okay. I, tomorrow I go see Birds of Prey, and that'll that'll okay. that'll get me off the bench and back in the game. Um, uh, no, January is um January is ugly. You know, there's just uh, the power of being my own boss means I don't have to watch everything or for everybody. So um, I kind of get to pick and choose. Um, it's it's award season, so I've kind of kept track of that. Um, most of those things, luckily, thanks to the screenings and all the the free swag that we get as being connected in in critics groups, I saw most of that stuff. You know, in November and December, mm-hmm. so I've been kind of done with that stuff for a long time, just letting it kind of do its thing. So, no, January has been um, a lot of little VOD releases, a lot of little small movies along the way. The Oscar-nominated shorts and documentaries, and some of that stuff's been crossing my plate. But I haven't. I didn't go see Bad Boys for Life. I didn't go see um, whatever the three January home movies everyone wants to. Put yeah, in I was there. about to say the three or you five know, horror Lee, films. Lee <laughs> doesn't have a, year, a movie this year, so there that January gets a little more boring. So, I'm happy to say. I've seen nothing. 
and I'm okay with it. Uh, you know what? I'll name drop one cute movie on Amazon Prime Video, and it has a little bit of a theatrical release going right now. Uh, Troop Zero, adorable movie, real cute movie about okay. uh, kind of um, near to well little weird little science girls in the 70s who want to get their name on the golden record, which goes on Voyager One and Voyager Two, and to do so, they kind of have to like win a, a kind of a Girl Scout style talent competition. Silly easy going movie where you know um kind of the stem of today can kind of echo into the times of yesterday and um it's it's mckenna grace who's that up-and-coming little actress and i don't mm-hmm. know if they owe money to somebody but viola davis and allison janey are kind of the two name actresses in there who are the dueling adults with these kids in mind and uh it's on amazon prime real cute movie best thing i've seen this year but that's easy to say because i've seen like two things this year <laughs> well that sounds like a lot of fun yeah, I have not been to the theater much recently either. I went for a rewatch of Parasite a couple weeks ago, which is great because uh, I got to introduce my roommate to that because he didn't go with me the first time. And I've watched a few things for the podcast. Yeah. I watched Wizard of Oz Ooh. this past weekend, <gasps> which is great because we just did a, a musical production. It was at a my theater high school. They did sure. the production and a lot of us band directors uh, got our instruments out and we put metal to face and we we played the music awesome. it was a lot of fun wow yeah it was it was a great time uh it was fun it was a good full circle moment for me because i did wizard of oz back when i was a freshman in high school and i had like a couple small bit parts on the stage and so now i'm a teacher right. and i got to be involved in the production but this time in the orchestra doing my thing now <laughs> very cool very cool in terms of a big screen experience i'm pretty sure i saw it in 3d it plays well in 3d mm-hmm the effects are gorgeous, you know. I mean, flawless effects. Yeah, yeah. It, it was. Uh, you're right. We'll probably never get to see it on the big screen again unless it becomes a cult following somewhere, or there's a you know an IMAX 3D film festival when 3D becomes lame someday, and they're like, oh, remember that John Carter movie we all left at? Come watch it in 3D. I don't know. It'd be, it'd be yeah. If not, it'll look gorgeous on 4K at home. Because I did the I, I just Blu-ray yeah. 1080p here at home, and I do I think I've shown you I got the projector in the wall and it, it looked great there. Um, I know Disney Plus whenever it shows mm-hmm. up in Disney Plus, I think all their stuff is natively in 4K streaming out to people, so it'll look like a million bucks when it gets there. Yeah, I watched it on Netflix earlier. Um, mm-hmm. I have the Blu-ray as well, yeah. but if it, if it ever comes out with a 4K, I will definitely pick that up. I have not dove into having a 4K player. My time will come. I'm yeah. kind of that lame old school guy who's like happy Blu-rays are starting to die because now I'm like picking up <laughs> Blu-rays for sale to replace like DVDs. And that's been fun. So because I'm still See, spinning crappy DVDs every now and then. Yeah, I still am building my Blu-ray collection, but I'm also working on my 4K collection, which yeah. I started building last Christmas, Christmas 2018. And so I- I'm getting that slowly built up. Uh, and I've got my 4K player here in my bedroom. Yeah. For me, it's been... um shrinking i know i keep saying buy if i buy it's to replace and like my rule is if i buy one i have to throw two away or at least donate two to the library or something like that i used to have like oh my god it was like 12 foot wide i used to have like 1100 or 1200 discs and it was massive but then uh you know then i have kids and i have to move to a smaller place or just a place where kids can't pick all those things off the shelf because my goodness that'd be a lot of things to pick up and i've started Mm -hmm. to kind of go digital with a lot of things where now like a big old my book terabyte hard drive holds a lot of my movies where i'm down to like 350 i just sold a bunch years ago before kids and trying to shrink yeah i have a whole bunch of movies um I don't have my full list available right now. I thought I had it in this app, which is really I sad. I definitely don't have mine typed up. Oh, okay. 441 
Blu-rays and 4K. Oh, that's movies. that's a healthy Total. collection. Yeah, I I can't let go of physical format yet. <laughs> I, me neither. I, I, there's um, if there's um, what gets me to buy a physical format is this, I, I don't mind the special features. Like now that I've watched John Carter again for the who knows how many times since 12 i gotta sit down and listen to commentary sometime i'd love to hear mm-hmm. stanton you have stanton pick our brains about it I, I think it'd be a good commentary to listen to that would um, be a good one it would be a good one. I, I don't know who else is on commentary with them but whoever it would be would be good just stand alone i think would be a brilliant mind to hear from are you much of a criterion guy do you get artsy fartsy and seek out some of those things i think i only have one yeah. criterion film it's uh a night to remember the titanic film I, I know um, I'm starting to pick up some, but more like not super foreign, obscure stuff, but like like they put Bull Durham on Criterion. Mm-hmm. They put like David Fincher's The Game on Criterion, uh, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, I've been starting to pick some of those like when there's a sale because um, as a teacher, I keep getting gift cards. I don't know why. I don't even read books. My kids must think I do, but I get like Barnes & Noble's gift cards, and I uh-huh. don't know what to buy at Barnes & Noble's, but I know twice <laughs> a year they have their Criterion sale, right. and, I'll, and I'll save my <laughs> gift cards up for that. So That's great. 